Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Over the course of the past several weeks leading up to Easter, we focused on a number of texts expounding various aspects of the living hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, This morning, though, we're going to be returning to our regular study in the book of Acts. But we hope to carry with us this remembrance of the hope that is ours through Jesus' resurrection. That still needs to be in the foreground of our thinking. Because from one perspective, the book of Acts is the story of the apostles' proclamation of that hope in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You, you might remember that it was the commission, that that was the commission given to the apostles by Jesus himself right before his ascension. They were to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And further, you might remember that the commission sets the general outline for the entire book of Acts. Luke records the progression of the gospel from the beginning in Jerusalem on Pentecost and then moving outward toward Judea and Samaria and finally to the end of the earth. And at each step in that journey, the hope of Jesus' resurrection is front and center in the apostles' teaching. The chapter that's going to be our focus for the next several weeks records one of those steps, maybe the most important step in that journey. One commentator writes, this section is one of the most important units in Acts because here the gospel goes out directly to a Gentile and to his household for the first time. This Gentile's name is Cornelius. And his conversion opened the door for the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles as Gentiles. With his conversion, God, through the apostles, makes clear that a Gentile does not have to become a Jew in order to be saved by Jesus. No, by faith and by faith alone, a Gentile can be saved. We're going to focus on this story for the next several weeks. This morning, we're going to see how God prepared Cornelius to hear the gospel from Peter. Then next Sunday, we'll see how God prepared Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius. Then we'll observe their interactions and listen in on their conversation. Finally, we'll see God's public validation of Cornelius' faith and the church's response. But as we come to listen to God's word, let's pray for his help to understand what he says to us. Would you pray with me? Guide us, O God, in the reading of your word, and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 10, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, 
who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, go and come up and join me. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Have you guys ever noticed, have you ever noticed that some people are really proud of the special food that comes from their home state or their country? Have you ever noticed that? People are, it's kind of a big deal. People are really proud of that stuff. The, the special dish that they make is, is really a matter of, of pride. Like, have you ever heard of cheese curds? Cheese curds, yeah. It's these oddly shaped lumps of cheese. They're kind of like the leftovers from the process of making cheese. Now, you can buy them even here in Cleveland. You can buy them over at Aldi. But my wife is not interested in those. She only wants the cheese curds that come from Wisconsin. She says, Wisconsin cheese curds are the best. No others can compare. If you want the good stuff, the stuff that squeaks when you eat it, like it actually does, it's weird. Nothing can compare. You have to go to Wisconsin to get the good stuff. Or, or maybe take a look at these. This is a delicacy that you will not find at Aldi. There's only one place that I know of where you can get these. And, and, uh, and that's from Colombia in South America. Now, after church, I will let you try one of these if you want, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are. These are ants. They are whole roasted giant ants, and they come from Colombia. That's pretty good. I gotta be honest. That's pretty good. It's kind of like nutty popcorn. That's nice. So, although sometimes you get a leg stuck in your mouth. That's okay. So, special things come from special places, right? Well, the Jewish people thought that they had something kind of like that because they had God's promises. And they were the only ones who had them. And they thought that if anyone wanted some of God's promises, they had to come to them to get it. They, they, they knew that if anyone wanted forgiveness of sins or a place in God's kingdom, that person was going to have to come to them. And now, at this point in the story that we were just reading about in the book of Acts, now that Jesus had come... But the people thought that, they, that other folks were going to have to come to the Jewish people in order to enjoy what God had done through Jesus. If you, if you really want to belong to God's kingdom, then you have to become a Jew. You have to come to us. That's kind of how they thought. But as we just read about Cornelius, that, that man who was a Roman soldier... He, he was not only a Gentile, which is kind of what they called anybody who was not Jewish. He was not only a Gentile, but he was like the opposite of a Jew. 
It, the fact that he was a Roman soldier meant he was as far away from being a Jew as you could really imagine. But God wanted his people to understand that the gift of salvation that he was giving, it, was, it didn't depend on anyone becoming Jewish. It depended on faith. It depended on trusting in Jesus as the king and rescuer that God provided. That's it. Because Jesus is the one who God sent to bless all the families of the earth, just like he had promised Abraham long ago. And so nobody was going to have to become a Jew to get God's blessing. God gives it in a different way altogether. All anybody has to do, all that you have to do, is go to Jesus. And because Jesus is happy to bless you as you come to him to get the goodness of God, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, guys, thanks. You can go back. If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. As Sam said, we are returning to our regular study uh, in the book of Acts this morning. And we are picking up right where we left off before our uh, Easter series uh, with the, the story of, um, of Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius. Uh, uh, the first time that the apostles uh, take the, the gospel explicitly and directly to a Gentile. And as Sam was saying, this is an important transition in the book because it is, it is here that, that God is, is prompting, maybe even prodding, uh, the apostles to fulfill the commission that he gave them at the very beginning. He had called them uh, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea for sure, and even into Samaria, but beyond Samaria to the end of the earth. And now for the first time, with, with God's prompting, with God's sovereign initiative, uh, they are beginning to fulfill that commission. But this move to take the gospel beyond uh, Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria, this, this move to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, required that God first demonstrated beyond reasonable doubt that his gospel that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this gospel was not only for the Jews, but it was for the Gentiles as Gentiles. That is, it was for the Gentiles who, who remained Gentiles and did not convert to Judaism. That's the, the emphasis of this narration, which begins here in chapter 10 and really goes through the middle of chapter 11. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be uh, looking at this story scene by scene to, to hear what it is that God has for us in this story. And this morning we begin with the opening scene of the narrative, the, the, the scene that introduces us to this Gentile, to Cornelius, a man who is prepared uh, to receive the gospel by a vision given by God. And what I want us to see this morning in particular is the, the portrait that we are given of Cornelius. Because I believe that God's choice of Cornelius teaches us something important about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this portrait more closely. Luke writes, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. So here we have 
Cornelius. And we're, we're told several things about him. First, we're told that he is a Roman centurion. That is, that he is a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army, a commander of, of 100 men. And he's, and he's part of a special cohort known as the Italian cohort that was stationed in Caesarea. And I think each of those details is significant. Let's begin just with the, the city where they are stationed. They're stationed in Caesarea. You, you hear it even in the name of the city. This is a city that was named for Caesar. This is a, a city that had been built up by Herod. It had, it had existed previously, but Herod had invested uh, greatly in the, uh, the, the, this city. He had built this city up, and it had become the political capital of Judea. This is where Roman power in the Judean province was centralized. From, from Rome's perspective, this was the capital of the region. And so here we have a city that is named for Caesar Augustus. That is the, the center of power, the, the center of the Roman occupation that had been built up by Herod, the man who was sort of Rome's puppet over Judea. And so this is all taking place in Caesarea. And, and it's taking place to a man who is part of that system. He is a centurion, as I said, a non-commissioned officer in, the, in the, the Roman army. Now, now let me be honest here. I don't know much about the army. I'm not even sure what a non-commissioned officer is. I had to look it up. All right? But this is what all the commentaries say. They say that, that a centurion was a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. And just like in our armies today... In the Roman army, this was really the backbone of the military. These are the, these are the people who made the army work. And so this is a man who is, who is of great importance. He has a significant role to play in the Roman army. And he's part of a group that is known as the Italian Cohort. And again, no one knows for sure exactly what that means, what it, what it means that, uh, that this was a, a, the Italian cohort. But the, but the name is suggestive, is it not? It suggests to us that this is a cohort from Italy, from maybe Rome itself. In other words, these are not natives to Judea who happen to be uh, cooperating with the Roman occupiers, but these are foreigners brought in to be a presence of, of Roman rule in the area. And so here is the man that God chooses to be the, 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 the doorway, the gateway to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He is a Roman centurion in the Italian cohort stationed in Caesarea. So he is a, a Gentile of the Gentiles, so to speak. As, as Sam was saying to the kids, he, he's not just not a Jew, he is the opposite of Jew from a Jewish perspective and yet and yet he is not an ordinary gentile he is not an ordinary roman soldier because look what else luke tells us about him beginning in verse 2 this centurion was a devout man who feared god with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to god so this Roman centurion is a devout, God-fearing man. Now to be devout, again, you, you, you hear it in the, the language, to be devout is to be devoted. Devoted to what? Devoted to your faith. 
Devoted to the God whom you honor as God. A devout man is a man who allows his faith to shape his life. That's who Cornelius was. He is a devoted man. He is devout, and he is devout to Israel's God. He is a man who feared God. His his faith was in the one true God, the God of Israel. He he did not look down upon the God of the, the people under his thumb. He did not look down upon the people under the control of the Roman military, but rather he recognized that their God was the one true God, or at least a true God. We're not actually sure uh, what exactly Luke means by God-fearer here. Does does this mean that that he honored God alone as God, or that he simply honored God as a God? We're not sure. We're not not sure exactly what he he means here. But, But at the very least, he recognizes that the God of Israel is a true and good and powerful God, and he honors him as God. And and being devout, he he allows that faith in in Yahweh, in Israel's God, to shape his life. So that that notice what he does. First, he he, he shares this faith with his family. He fears God together with all his household. And so he he shares his faith. He leads his family in also honoring this God. It's not something he just simply does in in private, but but he does it as the head of his household. And he gives generously out of his uh, resources. He gives alms generously to the people to to care for the poor and and for those in need. And he prays continuously. He honors this God with his regular prayers. And and each of these, to, to, to bring up your household, to, to give of your resources, and to, to pray. Each of these is a, a telling sign of devout faith even today. These are the things that those who are sincere do. Those who are sincere in their faith raise their children up in that faith. They, they teach that faith to their children as truth. They, they use the resources that are at their disposal in the service of their God. We've done that even here this morning. As, as Jeff said before we collected the offerings, this is a, a way of worship. This is a way that we express our devotion to God by giving back to him the first fruits of that which he has entrusted to us. And because he is God, we, we pray to him. We, we pray praises to him, honoring him for who he is, and then seeking his grace and his aid uh, for the course of our daily lives. This is who Cornelius is. He is a devout, God-fearing man who who has raised his household to, to honor God as God, who gives of his resources and who prays continually. So here is a Roman centurion who is a devout man. And I think it is vital that we keep both sides of this portrait in view as we try to make sense of what God is doing in this story. We have to see both that that Cornelius is a centurion and that he is devout. And we have to do this. We have to keep both sides of this, this portrait together because it is only together that this portrait teaches us what we need to learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ being for the Gentiles as Gentiles. That Cornelius is a Roman soldier that he is a centurion in the Italian cohort, that that he is stationed in Caesarea, all of this tells us that the gospel is for Gentiles. 
It tells us that a person does not have to become a Jew in order to be saved in Christ. In the Old Testament, it was possible for for Gentiles to, to come under the blood of the Lamb. But in order to do so, they had to join themselves to Israel. They they had to to join themselves and come under the the Jewish laws, the Jewish ceremonial laws, as well as the the civil and the the moral laws. To to be saved, to to have, have atonement made for their sins, they had to join themselves to Israel. They had to become Jews. But now God is making it clear that that is no longer the case. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is for Gentiles as Gentiles, for Gentiles who remain Gentiles. And we'll see that 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 is vital to the heart of the gospel. But that he is a devout centurion, that he is a man who, who honors God as God, is also vitally important. Because it teaches us that this gospel that is for the Gentiles is not a a squishy, contentless universalism. This gospel is is not a gospel that teaches that that everyone everywhere in every time is okay, regardless of what they believe or or regardless of how they live. That's, That's not what it means for the gospel to be for everyone. That the gospel is for everyone does not mean that that everyone's okay just the way they are and God would never ask them to change. That's not what's going on here. Rather, that that Cornelius is a devout centurion shows us that the gospel is good news for anyone and everyone who will honor God as God. The, The gospel is good news for the devout. The gospel is is good news for, for those who allow their faith in the one true God to shape their lives. That's what's going on here. The the gospel is not for the Jews only, but it is is not for for everyone without without, uh, concern for for how they live or, or what they believe. The gospel is good news for anyone and everyone who will honor God as God. That's the, the thrust of what, of what God is revealing to his people by, by calling Peter to go to Cornelius with the gospel. And I think this has profound implications for us today. Some of you may be familiar with the, the tagline of uh, the United Methodist Church. I'm familiar with it because I live behind First United Methodist Church and I drive by their sign all the time and I, I see the, the tagline scrolling across their sign. The, the tagline is, open hearts, open minds, open doors. I wonder, what's your visceral response to that tagline? How do you, how do you respond when you hear that? I'm not suggesting that it's true of of every United Methodist Church. I'm not suggesting that it's true of First United Methodist Church. But I think that that most of of the people in our circles sort of cringe when we hear that tagline. We, We cringe a little bit because we hear it, or we tend to hear it, as an admission of of doctrinal and ethical compromise. We hear it as if the, the church is saying, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. God loves you just the way you are. Our, our hearts and our minds and our doors are open. You can come and we will never ask you to change. 
You can, can come and, and you can just be yourself, whatever you think that means. Again, I'm not suggesting that any particular church believes that or, or interprets it that way, but, but we tend to hear it that way and we tend to, to cringe a little bit because we are opposed to such squishy universalism. We, we know that's not the gospel. We know the gospel doesn't say you're just fine the way you are. We know the gospel doesn't say that it doesn't matter what you believe or, or how you live. And, and so we, we cringe when we, when we hear language that seems to suggest that sort of thing. But at the same time, we also recognize, or at least I hope we recognize, I think we do, that it's not good to be narrow-minded and bigoted either. <laughs> we recognize that that's not, that's not the gospel either. We know that we cannot limit the gospel to one nation or to one race or to one culture or to one political affiliation. We recognize that we cannot narrow the gospel in that way to suggest that it's for these people and not those people. The gospel is for all people. People from every nation, people from every tribe, people from every tongue. This is who the gospel is for. The gospel is to be preached to all. All people are to be called to repentance and faith and promise salvation in the name of the Lord. We, we cannot add extra requirements. We cannot add extra um, prerequisites to the gospel. Well, you can be saved in Jesus Christ if you will do this. And so the question that we wrestle with as on the one hand, as we sort of cringe at, at, a, at a squishy universalism, but at the other hand are, are uh, uh, disgusted by a, a narrow bigotedness, we, we ask ourselves, well, how do, we hold, how do we hold the two sides of the gospel together? How do we, how do we hold the, the free offer of the gospel to all together with the firm requirement of, of doctrinal and ethical faithfulness? That's the question. It's the question we wrestle with today, and I, and I think it's the question that the early church was wrestling with, and it's exactly the question that God is seeking to answer by his choice of Cornelius. As I said, Cornelius was a full-fledged Gentile. Not just a, a, a Gentile, but a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier in the Italian cohort. He is fully and unquestionably a Gentile, and yet he is not a Gentile sinner in the way that the, the Jews would have used that language. He is not one who refuses to honor God as God. He is devout. He honors God. He, he honors God with his life, not just his lips. He honors God by, by raising his family. He honors God by, by giving generously. He, honor God, he honors God by praying con, continually. The, he honors God by allowing his faith in God to shape his life. And the angel who visits him seems to suggest that this is exactly why he was chosen. Look again at verse 4. When the angel comes to Cornelius, you know, as so often happens in the scriptures, Cornelius is terrified. We, we see that. He says, he stared at him and was in terror. He was in terror because here is an angel of the Lord standing in his presence. And he says, what is it, Lord? And the angel says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send for Simon Peter. 
he seems to suggest to him that he has been chosen because he is a devout Gentile. His, his prayers and his alms have ascended as a memorial before the Lord. He, he's asked to know God. He's asked to, to, to serve God. And now God is revealing himself to him more fully. He's now going to reveal himself to him through the apostles' teaching. He's now going to reveal himself through him, through the, the, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, the, the Lord and the Savior of all men. This is what is happening in this passage. And, and this, again, means, as I said before, that the gospel is for Gentiles who honor God as God. The gospel is for Gentiles who honor God as God. But also, that honoring God as God no longer means submitting to the ceremonial laws. We'll, we'll come back to that point next week, actually. Because, remember, these, these laws, these ceremonial laws that the Jews are, are clinging to are laws that were given to them by God. And, and so we have to deal with that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that next week. But for now, notice... The, the, the simple point that honoring God as God uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection no longer means submitting to the ceremonial laws that were given by Moses to the Old Testament people of God, but rather now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, honoring God as God means honoring Jesus as his son and obeying his commandments, pledging your allegiance to him, putting your faith in him, believing in him as Lord and Savior. That's what's going on here. That's the point that's being driven home. And, and, and for some of us, this can be hard because I don't think there's anyone here today who thinks that you've got to submit to the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be saved. You know, that, that, that's just not a common position among, among American evangelicals today. And yet, and yet I do think that there is significant and, and important application for us here. What we see in this text, what we learn in this text, is that the gospel is for all who believe in Jesus Christ. And that means that not only can we not add the ceremonial laws to the gospel, but we can't add anything else either. We cannot add nationality or, or race or wealth or, or, or politics. We, we cannot add any other requirement to the gospel. And, and in, of late, in the news, we've, we've seen a, 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 a test case, so to speak, of, of will we believe that the gospel is uh, salvation in Christ alone by faith Alone, we we've seen a, a test case. Just yesterday, I was I was reading an article in Christianity Today. It was actually on the Christianity Today website, and, and the article was was reflecting on the 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 attitude of Ukrainian Christians towards their Russian brothers and sisters in Christ, given the current conflict that is taking place, the the war, the invasion of Ukraine uh, that is taking place at this moment, and it's hard. It's a hard situation. But the gospel that Jesus is highlighting here in this text, the, the, the gospel that, that God is, is, is putting on full display and requiring the apostles to, to, to preach, that gospel means that Ukrainian Christians must acknowledge Russian Christians as their brothers and sisters in Christ. They cannot require them to renounce their nationality before acknowledging them as 
Christians. They cannot say, well, you can be saved in Christ as long as you stop being a Russian. That cannot be what a Ukrainian Christian says to their brothers and sisters in Christ. If, if their brothers and sisters in Christ are, are uh, Christians, if they are believers in Jesus Christ, then the Ukrainian Christians must acknowledge them as their brothers and sisters in Christ, despite what their country is currently doing. But, but, don't forget the other side of the portrait. What does the other side of the portrait teach us? The other side of the portrait teaches us that at the same time, because the gospel is for the devout, because the, the gospel is for those who honor God as God, Ukrainian Christians can call upon their Russian brothers and sisters in Christ to condemn and renounce the evil of their leaders as entirely out of accord with the justice and righteousness of their king. And this is actually what the Ukrainian Christians that I read about in the article were doing. They, uh, they were acknowledging, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but we need them. We need them to acknowledge the evil of what is taking place here, here and now. Because the gospel is for Gentiles. It's for all peoples. It's for Ukrainians and for Russians. But it's for those who honor God as God. And so the Ukrainian Christians must honor their, uh, their, brother, their Russian brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Russian brothers and sisters in Christ must honor their king by acknowledging that, that what's taking place is out of accord with his righteousness and his, his justice. That what's being done are the schemes of evil men. And that's the, the balance that we must maintain. You see how important it is then to, to, to keep both sides of the portrait in view. The, the gospel is for anyone and everyone who will honor Christ as king. But it is for those who honor Christ as king. It, it provides salvation to those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not a squishy universalism. But it is a universal offer of the gospel to any and all who will bow the knee to the one true king. But of course, the, the tensions between Ukrainians and, and Russians are on the other side of the globe. We have similar tensions, maybe not quite as intense at this moment. But we have similar tensions in our own backyard, do we not? Let's think about a situation that's a bit closer to, to home <laughs> Because I would suggest to you that, that God's choice of Cornelius means that a Republican Christian must acknowledge a Democrat Christian as his or her brother or sister in Christ. A Republican Christian cannot require a Democrat Christian to convert politically before acknowledging and embracing them. And that's, that's a hard thing to say in a, in a county that is like something like 95% Republican. We, we tend to be Republican about here. We tend to think that, that the Republican is the, is the more Christian party. We tend to think that Democrats ought to, to, to turn away from that. But again, we cannot add such political affiliations to the gospel. A Republican Christian cannot require a Democrat to adopt a Republican view of the best way to balance the, the concerns of, 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 of immigration with national security. A Republican Christian cannot require a Democrat Christian to, to uh, adopt a Republican view of the best way to balance the concerns of a free election with a trustworthy election. A Republican Christian cannot require a Democratic Christian to, to adopt a Republican view of the best way to, to balance free markets with corporate responsibility. 
Republicans and Democrats tend to view these issues differently. They they prefer prefer different balances of, of, of those concerns. And you can think that your position is the right one, is the best one for the country, is the best one for for people, the best one for the the poor. But what you cannot do is you cannot say that someone has to agree with you before they can be saved by Jesus Christ. A Republican cannot add a Republican viewpoint to the gospel. Just as the Jews could not require Gentiles to become Jews, Republicans cannot require Democrats to become Republicans. But... There is another side to this coin. I've had conversations with some of you who who are concerned deeply about certain aspects of the Democrat platform. Aspects of the, 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 the Democrat platform that are clearly out of accord with the righteousness and justice of our king. They promote abortion. They, they promote the, the, the murder of babies. They, they promote the LBGTQ agenda. And so it is possible for us to say you cannot add political affiliation to the gospel, and also say that those who uh, have a, a more democratic view of some of these issues nevertheless must at the same time honor Christ as king by acknowledging that those planks of the platform are far out of accord with God's righteousness and justice. And you see how we, we try to hold these two pieces together. And of course other applications could be made as well. It's tricky because, like I said, most of us aren't focusing on the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and so we're trying to find parallels in our own culture. But the truth is that, that we have this, this way in our sinful flesh of adding to the requirements of the gospel. We have this way of, of, of believing that the gospel is for people like us. And we must guard against that tendency. We must guard uh, aggressively against that tendency. Because the gospel itself is at stake. That's why God takes the lead here. That's why you see God's sovereign hand throughout this whole thing. Because taking the gospel to the Gentiles is not just about uh, ignoring uh, about cultural preference. It is about that. And that matters because that is actually at the heart of the gospel. Think of it this way. If the gospel is for Gentiles as Gentiles, then salvation is in Christ alone. But if the gospel is not for Gentiles as Gentiles, then salvation is not in Christ alone. You see, it is is the singularity of Christ that is at stake here. That's why God takes the lead in this situation. Do we believe that salvation is in Christ alone? Do we believe that, that, that his accomplished redemption is received as a gift by faith alone? Or do we believe that there's something else we have to do, some other standard that we must meet before we can receive that salvation? No, it is faith alone. It is, it is faith in God as God and his Son as our Lord and Savior. It is faith alone that receives the salvation of God. And because it is faith alone that receives the salvation accomplished by Christ alone, that is why the gospel must stand alone. That is why we cannot add to it. That's why we cannot say, no, the gospel is for you if you'll do this. No, the gospel is for you if you will but believe. The gospel is for you if you will but acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. The gospel is for you if you will honor God as God and give him thanks. 
And if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. No other requirement must be met. That is the wonder of this gospel. That's the wonder of the gospel that God is is preserving and and preaching and, and teaching through his apostles as he prepares Cornelius to hear that very gospel from the lips of Peter. And as we'll see as he prepares Peter to take that gospel to Cornelius. You see, this is a big deal because this is about the heart of the gospel. And what we see in this text, what we see in this text is that salvation is in Christ alone, received by faith alone. And because we have a gospel of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, that's why we call it good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for the wonder of this gospel. And we acknowledge to you that that as sinners, we are prone to twist it, we are prone to corrupt it, we are prone to add to it. But Father God, I pray that you would give us the grace we need to cling to it alone, to not be uh, persuaded by another gospel, which is really no gospel at all, but Father, to believe wholeheartedly that salvation is in Christ alone and received by faith alone. Father, give us the grace to, to believe and to cling to this gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.